One Week Season. OWS fam, the nation, and my dudes and dudettes and Zandamir. No, I'm just kidding. We are back for week 10, <laughs> week freaking 10 of the NFL season. Here we go. This week, man, super interesting, unique slate. Zandamir, why don't you tell me about it? <laughs> oh, man. This is like the first like multiple pay down at running back slate I feel like we've had in a while where like, um, I feel like what's, you know, my earlier years of DFS, right? Sites did not used to be very aggressive at pricing up backup running backs. And so uh, it was really common on any, a lot of weeks, you'd end up having like one or two min or very close to min salary running backs available who were like viable, strong plays. Um, they've been more aggressive at pricing up backup running backs lately, uh, especially DraftKings. And so, you know, when if a guy like leaves the game on Sunday and is questionable, um, you know, it seems like he's dinged up. You'll often see the backup get priced up proactively in case that guy's ruled out. Um, but this time we had Nick Chubb go surprise, go on the COVID list. Uh, and then Mark, or not Mark Ingram, uh, Alvin Kamara came out of last week's game fine, um, but then got injured in practice and has been ruled out. So we have a couple of like backup chalk running backs uh, who are, you know, close to min salary. Min salary on DraftKings running backs is 4K, and you've got you know Ernest Johnson at 4700, Mark Ingram at 4500. So there's these like chalk chalk cheap running backs, um, and that's going to be and that to me kind of is like the, the most important thing defining the slate from a player perspective and a roster construction perspective is these like the availability of these this running back value, um, and then from a game environment standpoint, we have several teams that are massive favorites. Uh, you've got Dallas, you've got Buffalo, you've got Tampa Bay, you've got the Colts. Um, I think that's it for the huge favorites, if I remember right. And um, I'm not looking at the lines right now. And so you've got these really big, good offenses in in spots where they're huge favorites. And so people are going to have to figure out what to do with that. Like, do you just play those without bringbacks? Do you play them with bringbacks and hope that the game becomes more competitive? Which offenses can you bet will continue to be aggressive uh, even if they're up big versus which offenses are likely to take kind of take their foot off the gas. And then there's sort of like one or maybe two like stackable games where you have a tight spread um, and and a relatively high total in uh, Chargers, Vikings and uh, and Green Bay uh, you know, Packers, Seahawks. Um, where there's where the spreads close, the team total is relatively high. And so it's an interesting week because they're like. There's kind of every game dynamic you could want. There's a couple of like closer high total games. There's a couple of just really high total teams that are not necessarily uh, in like where the game might not be a shootout, but they're still projected to score like four touchdowns. So I agree with Hello. It is a super interesting week. This is also one of the first weeks where I've, at least for me, where I've been able to like really narrow down my like teams that I want to target. And and normally I'm good at that. But like part of it, I think, has been driven by that. I've been playing MME on Yahoo because Yahoo keeps posting these guaranteed overlay tournaments, which I will take a moment to harp on again. Yahoo has a million dollar tournament uh, with million dollars in prizes, but they're only collecting $800,000 in entry fees. So there's 25% guaranteed overlay. Uh, if you play tournaments, uh, overlay is awesome. Mm-hmm. 
go for it. Um, and so I've been playing MME, and that's and when I play MME, that causes me to sort of spread my exposures out more, which may or may not be a good thing. Um, but this week, I've been able to really sort of narrow down. Like there just aren't a lot of teams that I want to attack, and so I've just been able to check so much off my list that my player pool is extremely narrow, which makes me very happy. So, phew. I'm also sad yeah. that Trevor Semyon is starting. Can I say that too? Yes, you very much can say that. We'll talk about that situation too later, yeah. um, I'm sure. Yeah, man. This uh, this week, we have a, like three game totals that are 50 points or more. Uh, we have a basically all the options in the world at the running back position, both high-priced and low-priced. We have some heavy, heavy, heavy expected ownership. Uh, on some of those plays. We have some game environments that are likely to go overlooked. Um, the Chargers and the Vikings was looking that way early on in the week. That game has since picked up steam. Um, the other one, the Packers and the Seahawks, that game is largely going overlooked. And I think what uh, interest does come from that game is going to be of the one-off variety. So something to think about there. Basically, what all that boils down to is there are a ton of moving parts this week, which is good for us who are putting in the work to be able to see through the, you know, the just the volume of information and decisions that have to be made on rosters this week to point to the best, highest EV plays and attack those relentlessly. So we're going to obviously... We're going to break down the slate. We're going to look at it from an MME perspective and a single entry perspective um, and try and figure out where are the most optimal places to place our bets this week. When I mean this is, I made a joke about it in the end round, actually. Since you read it, you know. Uh, I'm just kidding. There, uh, there I are... always read it. It's not always in time. <laughs> <laughs> just, oh, man. The funny part is I have I give zero shits. I just love to give you shit about it, um, which <laughs> is, is just makes me happy. Um, I made a joke in the end around that people actually have to make decisions at the running back position this week. Um, and that is from a raw, uh, a macro roster perspective, uh, roster construction. Jesus, I, I speak English good. Um, a macro roster construction perspective, meaning that there aren't just a clear tier of player pricing at the running back position where you know it's easiest to go this week we have everything from you know we've got four or five high price studs that are in good spots likely to garner ownership we have jonathan taylor nashi harris austin eckler christian mccaffrey dalvin cook all these guys who have an extremely solid expected range of outcomes this week we also have the um the value at the position who's expected to Garner some pretty hefty ownership. And the clear twoest players are Dearness Johnson and Mark Ingram. What I was hoping that we would get Devin Singletary this week, I, because he was my favorite of oh, the bunch. Me too. Uh, yeah, uh, but that is not going to happen. Zach Moss cleared protocol earlier today, and he will be active. So what I want to do, good sir, is I want to start this discussion at these two cheap running backs. And Dearness Johnson sitting with a salary of 4.7 and Mark Ingram sitting with a salary of 4.5. And I want to hear your thoughts first and then I will bring it home. Yeah. So, okay. <clears throat> My thoughts are maybe a little convoluted. So like, first let's just like be clear on one thing. The most important thing 
for running back production is volume, right? And both these running backs are in positions where they're going to get a lot of volume. Uh, there, there's not really like guys behind them. You know, when Dearness Johnson uh, was the lead back a couple weeks ago, he got, I don't remember, well over, over 20 touches. Um, Mark Ingram should project at over 20 touches here for a Saints offense that really wants to run. There's really no not much threat to his usage. Both of them are going to be involved in the passing game. Um, it's hard to see either of them failing. To the point where I would just say, if you don't play both of them in cash games, if you're playing cash, that's a mistake. Like, it's just a flat out mistake to build your cash roster without those two guys. Um, it's really hard to see them failing. Like, they should be locks for at least 10 points, assuming, assuming they don't get hurt, uh, with, with certainly upside beyond that. Um, but at their massive ownership... Uh, you know, I have Dearness Johnson projected over 45% ownership. Mark Ingram's around 35% ownership. So when the guys get that owned, no matter how strong of plays they are, you have to at least critically look at the other side. And the other side of each of these coins here is Dearness Johnson is playing for a Cleveland team that's extremely committed to the run. So the role is solid. Um, but they're on the road against New England. New England is an extremely adaptable defense that you know will will tailor their defense to the strengths of the opponent, to the opponent's best way of attacking. They know that the opponent's best way of attacking is on the ground. Um, you know, Cleveland has made no secret of the fact that they want to be a very run-heavy team. Um, they want to kind of hide Baker Mayfield and maybe use him to take some deep shots to you know Donovan Peoples-Jones, and that's sort of it. Uh, so you know, it makes sense that they're going to build their defensive game plan around stopping the run and force the Chiefs to win with Baker Mayfield. Um, so, you know, whether or not Baker Mayfield can, you know, I don't think that means you need to play the, the, uh, I said, Chiefs, the Browns, um, you don't mean, doesn't mean you need to play the Browns passing game, right? They, but Baker Mayfield will have to be successful enough in the air to force the Patriots to not just stack the box, uh, right. He'll have to like do enough to make the Patriots sort of respect the passing attack. Um, and that'll be kind of the crux of that game. Um, and then for Mark Ingram, you know, you have a really strong role, but you also have the Saints on the road with Trevor Simeon at quarterback. So, you know, you don't exactly have uh, not exactly a lot of inspiration at quarterback. Now, that makes Mark Ingham's role really secure because we know the Saints are going to want to lean on the run really hard, um, lean on their defense. But we also know like there's there's more risk here of the Saints offense just floundering entirely like this is a Titans defense that just shut down the Bills and the Rams. And now you've got a Trevor Semyon quarterback Saints, you know, Saints attack coming for them. And like I could see the Saints just flopping. So, you know, both of them are really strong plays, but. I think they both come with a fair bit of risk and it's not so much risk of talent or risk of role. Like the, the talent's fine. Um, Dearness Johnson has been good. Mark Ingram is at least capable. Um, they both have really strong roles, but there's, there's risk to the overall offensive environment of their teams in these matchups. And so, uh, you know, again, like strong plays, but I think it's entirely viable to consider going a different direction. Um, now I will say in, in candor, that's not my style. Like I, you know, the, I think, I think they're good plays. I'm aware of the risks. Um, they're going to be super highly owned. I will probably just eat that chalk. Um, and generally speaking, I'm okay with eating chalk at running back. Um, and I will try to differentiate elsewhere. Um, but I just, I feel like I have to talk about that where, you know, these are not locked in plays that just can't miss, right? Like there, there are paths to failure for these guys and those paths to failure might be, you know, higher than their, uh, the likelihood of failure might be higher than their ownership. So 
just be aware of the risks. You know, strong on paper plays, but this, these are not like home favorite three down running backs in good matchups, right? In both cases, they're road running backs. The matchups are tough, um, and there's risk of some offensive, just overall offensive floundering, which I think, which I think is higher risk for Ingram than it is for Johnson. I would 100% agree with that. I'm going to break these guys down individually um, and kind of we're not coming to conclusions. We're not hinting at, hey, play these guys, don't play these guys. We're just trying to put all the information out there so y'all can make the most informed decision with how you want to handle this particular position on this particular slate. So with Dearness Johnson, what do we have? We have three running backs that are listed ahead of him on the depth chart to start the season are out. We also have no true running back behind him as of an hour and a half ago. So that is likely to remain the, I guess, the norm for them into this game. Who do they have on the roster at the back position? They have Andy Janovich, who is coming off of an extended absence as the fullback, and they have a practice squad fullback. So what does that tell me? That tells me that the opportunity, his expected workload, is completely locked in for this week. Like There is just no other option on the team. We know how the Browns are likeliest to attack. All that lines up. The matchup, yes, this is a Bill Belichick-led team who historically is going to try and I guess the best way to put it is hamstring his opponent's most likely means of attack. But historically, he has done so with very athletic um, linebackers and second level. They don't really have that this year. They have a slower, older linebacker core, and they're basically playing a defensive strategy that uh, is allowing teams almost daring teams to rush on them between the 20s, and they look to load the box in the red zone. All of that has led to the Patriots allowing 852 total yards rushing from running backs on 200 carries. So that's a solid just over 4.2 yards per carry. They have seen 78 targets against to opposing backfields, allowed 61 receptions, so an extremely high uh, completion rate to the running back position for an additional 593 yards and one touchdown. So all in all, they've only allowed three touchdowns to opposing running back, uh, the opposing running back position this season. And that kind of goes into that understanding of this defense is very, very good at utilizing the boundaries. What do I mean by that? They're very, very good at clogging lanes in the red zone for both running backs and wide receivers and tight ends. That's just how they're built. They're built to, to limit the damage in the red zone. Are they going to transfer that kind of plan of attack uh, you know, between the 20s? We have no idea. The bottom line is four things I'm looking for in a running back play. I'm looking for matchup. We can call that a check. It's neutral to positive, we'll say. You know, the Patriots have surrendered... 1500 yards to running backs total between through the air and on the ground in their game. So this is, this is a neutral to a, to a positive. We'll, we'll call that a check. That is a check in the matchup box. The opportunity, we covered that earlier. I called that a double check. We know that he is basically their only backfield contributor for this week. Cost. 
I'll call that a triple check. He is down at priced at 4.7. And the talent, we have seen this guy's got some chops. I watched that game where he was the starter. He saw 22 carries and two targets. This dude, late in the game, was carrying like two and three defenders on his back, getting first downs to ice that game. This, this guy is a legitimate talent. He has okay vision, okay burst, but it's one of those instances where he is basically a downfield runner, right? And the, the Browns have the top run blocking offensive line in the league. So all that comes together. Dearness Johnson is a play for me where as a single entry three max guy, I will have hundred percent of him this week. And it is basically a floor play for me with the amount, you know, the 22 to 25 running back opportunities as a floor for Dearness Johnson that we expect this week. That gives him a floor that is unmatched of any other player across the board in his price range. When we look at the wide receivers at 4.7, we have Elijah Moore, T.Y. Hilton, LaVisca Chenault, Kendrick Bourne, A.J. Green, Zach Pascal. Stop me when you hear somebody with a floor. Jamal Agnew, Olamide Zacchaeus, Rondell Moore, Robbie, right? You get the picture. Okay, tight ends. Excuse me, Alameda. Is that how you pronounce it? Alameda? I had no idea. Uh, he scored two touchdowns last week. Come on, that guy's a smash. <laughs> yeah, to play him not. I'm, please don't. Uh, I'm kidding. At the tight end position, we have Dallas Goddard, Zach Ertz, Dawson Knox. You get the picture. Like there is, once we get down to these lower pricing ranges, floor is non-existent because what is price? What is salary from a DFS perspective? It is a reflection of a player's weekly floor. In most cases, I'll throw that little asterisk caveat there. All right, so those are my thoughts on Dearness Johnson, pretty much lining up with X with what X said. Mark Ingram, until about two hours ago, I was lower than the field on Mark Ingram, and here's why. Tennessee, this defense is being highly, highly slept on. They've allowed only 21.3 fantasy points per game to opposing backfields, and that is basically on the backs of being solid both on the ground and through the air. They've surrendered, they've faced only 154 rush attempts against. They have faced only 56 um, running back backfield targets against, and they've surrendered just over 1,000 yards to opposing backfields this season. Comparison's sake, like we talked about earlier, that's a full 500 yards less than the Patriots have given up. Tennessee have given up six touchdowns on the ground, one through the air. So while they've, they've allowed double the touchdowns of the Patriots, this is still a team who is built on the defensive side of the ball, basically allowing or daring teams to try and move the ball over the intermediate through the air. They clamp down on the run up the gut. They clamp down or they try to clamp down on deep passing via their heavy zone scheme. That Basically, that idea and how this team has struggled so much against uh, wide receivers to start the year is complex zone schemes. They take time. They take communication. And all that takes repetitions to get on the same page because what we've seen is all these coverage lapses. And that's how Tennessee has really struggled against wide receivers, particularly deep areas of the field this season. All that said, this team is built to minimize damage against them on the ground. We also have Trevor Simeon starting for New Orleans. We have um, a Tennessee defense who's expected to be the highest owned defense on the slate. We'll cover that here shortly. But you get kind of where I'm going is 
how can Mark Ingram be the second highest owned running back and the Tennessee defense be the highest owned defense on the slate? Something isn't adding up to me until, and I say this, uh, I guess, yeah, until um, Julio Jones was ruled out for the Titans. What did that do to, to my thought process? Well, that created a scenario in my mind where we have Marshawn Lattimore, who is expected to be now extremely sticky on AJ Brown because they don't have that viable, you know, high upside secondary pass option on the offense. They have a trio of tight ends who are catch and fall. They have Westbrook Yakine um, and maybe Chester Rogers this week. Like that's who they have as pass catchers outside of AJ Brown. So I'd expect Marshawn Lattimore to be fairly sticky. I don't know if he'll full shadow because they use him on full shadow on prototypical X wide receivers, you know, wide receivers who are more body control wide receivers. AJ Brown is kind of this hybrid X Z receiver where he is able to both have that, you know, body control style as well as burst off the line. So I don't know if they'll play a full shadow on him, but I expect Lattimore to see a lot of AJ Brown. If I played football, so I would be an X receiver. Todd, uh, Todd, Todd, that Todd, one's for Todd, you. Todd, Todd, Todd. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. So no, we, we need that in our lives right now. It's lovely. I love it. So what does that do to the Tennessee offense uh, or to the, um, yeah, the Tennessee offense is I think it is going to make it extremely difficult for them to move the ball. They don't have Derrick Henry. They don't have Julio Jones and they're going up against a defense who is a top two to three defense in the league. So what does that mean for New Orleans offense? That means better field position. That means extra possessions. That means all that stuff. So all that considered that solidified Mark Ingram's workload a little bit more for me. So we have a matchup that's, eh, we'll call it maybe a half check or neutral at best. We'll call it neutral to negative. We have opportunity, which is a double check. He is expected to see the same 22 to 25 running back opportunities. And we know that he is familiar with this offense because he's played in it before. We have cost. That's another triple check. And we have talent. We'll call that a crying check uh, in the sense that this is just an aging running back. So all that together, I'm a little bit more on the pro Mark Ingram side than I was two hours ago. Um, but th- to me, this is the guy between the two that I would be comfortable having less exposure to. That's interesting. I actually didn't see Julio was ruled out. Um, I, I He's on the IR. Oh, dude. man. Poor Julio. What a lost couple of seasons. I, I, um, <laughs> yeah. I uh, Man, prayers up for anyone who drafted Julio in best ball. Um, it wasn't me. But... Um, Man, like I just feel bad for that guy. But like I, I agree with your take that, that that reduces the chance of like what it takes away from in addition to better field position is it takes away sort of the game flow risk, right? Like without Derrick Henry, without Julio Jones, it's hard to see the Titans like pulling way away to the point where the Saints have to say we have to abandon the run now and just, you know, and just try to catch up through the air. So I think that means Ingram's it makes Ingram's role more secure, right? Like that takes the game flow risk away from him. Unher. So that was something that I was working through heavily in my own noggin over the past couple of hours to try and figure out because I was very, I was very anti Ingram until Julio was ruled out. Um, take that for what it's worth. Chew on all that, but that is one of the major decision points on the week. Um, so we wanted to make sure that we hit that fairly heavily. 
You have anything to add on those two low price guys before I kind of wrap that up? Yeah, I just want to know too, like your, your approach to this should also take into account the contests you're playing. Like again, if you're playing cash games, just play them both, right? Like I, I, normally this is not my thing to be like, here's who you should play, here's who you shouldn't play. But like this one is pretty clear cut. And if you're playing cash, like it would be a mistake not to play the two best on paper plays, you know, on the slate. Um, if you're playing tournaments though, that's where you want to put some more thought into it. And I think you want to consider, you know, what tournaments are you playing, right? If you're playing, like I play mostly small field stuff uh, for like my higher dollar entries and I'm comfortable with these guys there. Um, in MME, if you're playing like these really large field tournaments though, that's where you want to think. And again, you could just lock them in MME and be like, I'll differentiate elsewhere or you could differentiate there. And if you just don't play those guys in your MME tournaments, then you can kind of do whatever you want in the rest of your roster and not worry about ownership because you're avoiding the two highest owned players in the slate. So, you know, either approach is viable. Just make sure you're being thoughtful about it and, and, feel, and think about, you know, where do I want to allocate my risk essentially is the decision that you need to make. What makes the running back position so gnarly this week is the presence of these five pay-up guys who are in great spots as well. So people are good ones. People are gonna want to play these guys. So, what is the most likely roster construction this week? It is one of these pay-up guys. People picking and choosing. It is one pay-down guy. So it is an either-or of Dearness Johnson or Mark Ingram, and we're highly likely to see the same 40, 35 to forty percent. I think is the the running back in the flex utilization rate on this season. What's that? Well, okay. So I don't know for sure. I, I haven't looked at it in a while, but a couple weeks ago I looked at it and it was like 20 something percent for oh running, for running okay. back in the flex. I know where you're going with this. All right. So that is <laughs> that. Yeah. I hinted at this at a, well, I didn't hint at it. I kind of wrote a fucking book on it, but uh, pardon the French. Um, this is my biggest leverage angle on this slate is this the dynamic of the running back position with so many high priced running backs people are likely to pick one people are likely to pick one of these cheap guys and play them together and call it a day right so how do we generate leverage what is a extremely simple but extremely logic driven way of creating leverage here well we know that the field is playing running backs in the flex flex position at a decreased rate this season. I wrote the article, the end around on the assumption last time I looked, it was about 35 to 40% of um, running back utilization in the flex spot. If it's all the way down at 20, that just strengthens this leverage so much more. And that is to simply play three running backs this week. Don't pick and choose between the high price guys, play two of them and pair them with Dearness Johnson or, or Mark Ingram. Or play both Mark Ingram and Dearness Johnson and pick your favorite high price running guy, running back. Mix and match them. Pair them with game flows. It is an extremely, extremely plus EV way to generate leverage. What are we giving up by doing that? We're giving up about one and three quarters percent of expected value. What do I mean by that? That means that by playing or the numbers, the studies that have been done have told us that you gain about one and three quarters percent of expected value by playing a wide receiver in the flex. Why is that? I talk about it in my course. I'll give you a little sneak peek here. Wide receivers are 
basically a higher variant position. They carry a broader range of outcomes. So if you can get a wide receiver um, at the 6K range, we'll say, compared to a running back in the 6K range, over time, historically, the running back in the 6K range has a higher floor. That means they have a, um, well, we can think of it as a tighter range of outcomes, right? The wide receiver is going to have a wider range of outcomes. So theoretically, they have a, they carry a higher, a higher ceiling, and that is going to lead to a higher expected value over time. That is why we have seen the field become more aware of this, become, we'll say, level two game theory aware, like I called it in the end around. And they know that the numbers tell us to do that. Well, if we become level three game theory aware and we realize that the field is doing that, we can then throw that information into the bucket of common knowledge, which is knowledge that is understood by all. Well, I guess it wouldn't even be common knowledge because our opponents do not have or are not utilizing that level of thinking. So if we have an understanding or a truth of something that the field does not, that is leverage. So we are sacrificing the historic 1.75% of expected value by putting a wide receiver in the flex by playing a running back in the flex this week because the opportunity is there and it generates a higher degree of leverage. So if it hits, it's going to hit with us uh, competing against fewer rosters. All right, that was a lot. Hopefully I explained what I was trying to explain in the end around a little bit better. Anything, final thoughts on that? Yeah, two quick notes. One um, is when you think about this stuff, you just need to recognize that when we talk about creating leverage, what leverage is about, it's not about finding a low-owned play. It's about finding smart plays through roster construction generally, but there's other there's other uh, levers you can pull for leverage, but the best the best roster or the best leverage lever that you can pull, in my opinion, is through your roster construction. And so thinking about and saying, you know, instead of trying to find like the weaker play and be like, I'll just play, I'll play a play that's on paper worse because it uh, gets me lower ownership. Instead, you say, I want to play the best on paper plays. I'm just going to build my roster differently in the field. And so that gets you leveraged on the field, but without you're not giving up uh, playing the best plays, if that makes sense. And two, Hilo's point about EV of playing four wide receivers, you know, wide receiver in the flex is accurate, but it's also over a large sample of data. And so, you know, I'm a data guy. I like just kind of being like, and I like simplifying my process. I like just saying, look, wide receiver in the flex is plus EV. I'm just going to do that every week. Um, but you don't want to do stuff like that blindly. When you follow those rules blindly, you neglect it. It means that you're not paying attention to the dynamics of each individual slate. And, uh, you know, well, like I, I, I like the ease of just being able to say like wide receiver and the flex, but like you've got to pay attention to each slate individually because each one is its own puzzle to solve. And so if you just say, you know, I'm always going to do this, then you're missing opportunities to recognize that slates are different. And, you know, you might if if you always played for a played running back and flex, then over time, you would indeed be giving up. What was it? One point seven five percent of expected value. But on any given week. At one point seven five percent of EV is not necessarily true. Right. It depends on it depends on the slate. And I would argue that on this slate, it's not necessarily true. It could very well be, in fact, just straight out wrong, uh, where I think that this slate, because of the nature of the slate, because of the um, 
you know, the value, like not just the value we have at running back, but also that we have multiple uh, high-priced running backs who have like legitimate, really strong ceilings, which is something we're often missing in today's sort of day and age of running back. But we have like multiple running backs who have ceilings easily into the 30s. And so I would actually argue this week that uh, you're not really giving up that expected value. In fact, if you go look at running back projected points on DraftKings, um, <clears throat> there are five running backs who project for over 20 DraftKings points. There's one wide receiver who projects for over 20 DraftKings points. So you're not really necessarily giving up expected value this week because of because of how unique the week is. So TLDR, there's rules that, that you, we know are plus EV over time. But don't just blindly apply them to every situation. Think about each slate critically. Boom. I love it. All right. I was going to, I'll talk about it real quick. What X was describing earlier um, of, oh, this guy's expected, this guy's priced at 8K and he's expected to carry high ownership. This guy's priced at 7.9K. He's expected to garner a quarter of his ownership. That would be a pivot. And that is, depending on who you ask, depending on what contest you're playing in, it depends on if that is the most optimal way to approach it. For an MME player who is able to capture, lower his variance by playing more lineups, that is a valid way to do that. And you are just managing your variance through your exposure levels in that portfolio of rosters. For a single entry and three max player, that would just be a simple mistake. As in, you are giving up too much projection on your roster as a whole and not differentiating enough for it to matter. Um, better ways to do that, as X, as X just laid out, are through roster construction. So it's, I'm not going to just say like a pivot is, is minus EV and it's a bad thing to do. And it just depends on what your goals are and what, what contests you're in and what your approach is for the slate, the week, the month, whatever. It just depends. But we need to understand what that is doing from an expected value perspective. And so I wanted to quickly just run through that. That pretty much beat the running back position to death. We talked about the top five high-priced guys, Christian McCaffrey, Jonathan Taylor, Dalvin Cook, Najee Harris, and Austin Eckler. And that is pretty much the top five for projections. We also have these two guys down below. If going this mid-range, and that is a way to differentiate your roster on a week like this where we're expecting to see heavy stars and scrubs, if you're going in this middle range, I would say that you should be doing it as part of a game environment bet. What does that mean? Aaron Jones, DeAndre Swift, Cordero Patterson, James Conner, Leonard Fournette. That's kind of these middle-range, middle-tier price guys this week. Do And I'll, I guess we should add Zeke into that as well. Are all these guys better plays on paper than the seven running backs that we just listed as the top plays on the slate? No, they are not. Can they, through a game environment, produce a higher end-of-day box score than those seven guys? Yes, they can, but they need some stuff to go right in their favor. Typically, what that stuff to go right in their favor means is a game environment that harbors additional production for them. So all that being said, if you are playing these middle range guys, realize that does differentiate your roster construction, but it, I would consider it a minus EV play unless you play it correctly. And that is through a game environment bet. those are my final thoughts on the running back position. We're going to tie a bow on that unless you have anything else to say on the position X. Why Christian McCaffrey some more? Because I feel like that we talked about that a bit last week and 
Uh, I feel like we want to touch on that on him separately. He's in sort of a interesting spot again. For sure, ready go. Okay, I mean the TLDR on Christian McCaffrey, right? He got 19 <laughs> touches last week. Sorry, <laughs> okay. He got 19 touches last week, right? Um, so below his normal workload, he played like 50 something percent of the snaps. The Panthers also got crushed, and my suspicion, which I can't prove, but my suspicion is the Panthers, you know, are kind of playing for their playoff lives here. Uh, they seem committed to trying this season. They just signed Cam Newton um, into a fairly significant guaranteed contract. So it seems like they're committed to trying. Um, and so they're playing to win. And I think that if they had, had a shot at the game last week, uh, they would have used Christian McCaffrey more. I think there's a good chance that he would have seen more work if the game had been close. Like he came out of it with no injury designation. Right. Like he seems healthy, seems fine. Um, and so my suspicion is that there was more upside to his workload had the game been close. But since the game wasn't close, they decided we'll, we'll take it easy. Um, so I think that there's decent upside on him. He's still on DraftKings, an incredibly cheap price for Christian McCaffrey. We're used to playing nine, paying 9K plus or even over 10K for Christian McCaffrey. Um, assuming that he gets his full workload, he probably has the highest projection of any running back on the slate. Um, his ownership has begun creeping up. It was under 5% when I was looking yesterday, but I think multiple people are saying the same thing that I'm saying now. Uh, and his ownership is creeping up. It's currently projected around 10. So I'd guess it goes up more. It's trending It's trending upwards. And it probably goes up a little more by the, by the time tomorrow morning rolls around. So he's an interesting decision point to me. He's, he's in that pile of high-priced running backs. He probably has the highest floor and ceiling if he gets his full workload. And so he's kind of a, he's a decision point for me. And the way that I think through that is... His workload makes him a much more volatile play than normal because we don't know, right? Like my suspicion is he could have played more. Um, but I don't know. And, and they could get blown out here again. They could take it easy on him, right? Like they're against Arizona, which is a much better team than, than the Panthers with PJ Walker, a quarterback. So he's a highly volatile play. And, and my general approach to highly volatile plays is I want to be overweight them when they're low owned and I want to be underweight them when they're high owned. So to me, he's an ownership play and I'm not going to decide on how much Christian McCaffrey exposure I'm going to have until tomorrow morning when I can see the final run of ownership projections. Um, and if he starts getting, if he goes up materially from his 10% that he's currently at, then I will want to be under on him. If he seems to be hanging at range, uh, then that's a play that I want to take take shots on, similar to last week. 100%. I love it. I was 100% behind the, like, just play CMC and worry about the rest um, until, at, you know, when his ownership was at 5%. I'd expect that he creeps up to even match the rest of the higher price guys um, in ownership. You know, we have Najee Harris, who is expected to garner the most of that bunch at 22.2. And we have Austin Eckler, 16.9. Jonathan Taylor, 16.6. Dalvin Cook, 12.8. So we're starting to see all these guys are pretty much bunched together. And how is that likely to play out? Like we talked about, one pay up and one pay down. So think about the ways where you are going to choose to differentiate yourself and your roster at the running back position this week. I have nothing to add on CMC, pretty much covered it uh, completely. What I want to do now is I want to talk about game environments because we really don't have a glaring, another glaring funnel for um, roster construction and expected ownership this week. Um, you know, the next position that we see is really the tight end position as far as expected ownership goes outside of a guy named Devontae Adams. And we'll talk about him here shortly as well. But 
Um, so I want to talk about game environments, and that should allow us to clean up these positions uh, one by one here. With that said, what are so we know we have the three? Well, uh, I'm going to leave the Cardinals out. Uh, really, they are one of the top four offenses on the week. Um, but when we get to that game, I'll explain why. So we really have basically three teams who are expected to score some heavy pointages this week. That is the Buffalo Bills, the um, Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and who's the third one? Sorry. Oh, Lord. The um, Cowboys. And the Cowboys. Thank you. I right, keep those teams- lines up when we do this. Yeah, yeah, I know, dude. I had <laughs> like 17 tabs open. Uh, I digress. So the Bills at 30.25 points currently, the Bucks at 30.25 points currently, the Cowboys at 31.5 points currently. So these are the offenses most likely to score four to five touchdowns, right? The Colts come in just below them at 29 points. I would rank them fourth on the slate. Um, and the Cardinals are down at 27 points. But the game that started the week off with low interest, but it has been picking up steam as the week has progressed, is this Vikings-Chargers game. I was highly, highly interested, and then that interest lulled off, and then it jumped back when the Vikings now have five defensive starters who are ruled out for the game. So talk to me. How are you viewing this Vikings-Chargers game? Yeah, um, I mean, one of the things that I do, like part of my process, is I go dig around for the highest total games and and where the ownership is. And, you know, there's some ownership on this game, right? But like neither quarterbacks over 10%. Uh, the ownership on the running backs of Eckler and Cook is is reasonable. Keenan Allen is projecting for about 20% ownership, but no other receiver in this game is projecting for over 10. Um, the tight ends, for some reason that feels almost inexplicable to me, are projecting this being ownership. Um, I don't know. I, 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 I feel weird going after the Chargers tight ends when they now have a three-way timeshare. Um, but so the, t- the, the overall ownership on this game is not egregious. And I think people are shying away from Mike Williams because he seems to have moved away from the Zandamir receiver role. Um, they're, for, they're shying away from Jefferson and Thielen. So they're, just, they're trying to shying away from the Vikings as a whole. Um, but this is still a concentrated offense in one of the higher total games. So I like this is the game for game stacking that I'm probably going to have uh, the highest exposure to um, in, in my, now I'm trying to think how to, how to, how to phrase it. I, I think I'll have higher exposure to other teams. I think the bucks are the safest team on the slate for raw points. Um, and, but when I, but I'm, but when I'm thinking about game stacking, like, you know, stacking both sides of a game, this is going to be the game that I target the, uh, the, at the highest rate. Um, Cause I just think like, these are two good offenses. They're two relatively concentrated offenses. Uh, the Vikings are missing a bunch of starters. Um, the Chargers D has been solid enough, but like they're, you know, they've shown some cracks after their like early season heroics. Um, I love this game. Like I just I love this game. And and from a strategy angle, like I'm not I'm not someone who insists on having like a bunch of late plays, but when it plays out that way, I do kind of like it because it gives me flexibility to adjust to how I'm doing. Um, and so I like, you know, when, when all our things are equal, that's kind of a tiebreaker for me. And so I like that it's a late game. Yeah. Looking at this injury report as well, a lot has been made about the five defensive starters that are going to be out for the Vikings. 
let's look at the Chargers. We knew that they were extremely banged up in the secondary last week. Well, what happened? We saw Devonta Smith come out and put up, you know, something like 500 catches for 110 yards and a touchdown on only 17 <laughs> pass attempts. So it has been proven that this defense is not as effective without these guys on the field. Add Joey Bosa to the list of questionable players this week. We have cornerback Ryan Smith and safety Nasir, uh, or sorry, Ryan Smith is out. Cornerback Michael Davis is listed as doubtful. Safety Nasir Adderley is listed as questionable. So we have all these players who are still extremely banged up. Um, the three members of the secondary that I listed were out last week. We had Joey Bosa play last week. What happens if Joey Bosa misses again? Well, there goes, you know, a large part of the Chargers' ability to generate pressure. When you pair that with the lack of starters on the back end, now we get to this position where we could see some deep shots uh, against the Chargers, who are normally a team that look to take away that uh, through the air. So there's a lot going for this game that I don't think is still being talked about enough. And this is one of my favorite games to play a correlated pairing and, um, you know, call it good because the ownership just isn't there. You can even game stack it because this game could turn into the highest scoring game. Uh, in fact, it's highly likely to be as the highest current, um, Vegas spread or Vegas game total. So we have all this stuff going where there's not a lot of ownership on this game. It's there's a ton of defensive injuries from both sides, which is the important part. We have a Chargers offense who likes to push the pace of play. They like to throw the football. We have a Vikings team who we know will do that if they are forced. They have a top five second half pace of play this season. They are extremely likely to pass the football when trailing. Um, in pretty much everything but a neutral to positive game script, they're going to be expected to throw the football as well. We look at the injuries along across these defenses, who does it most benefit? Well, it most benefits the running backs with the um, linebacker core dinged up for the Vikings. And the Vikings are also um, have one Brashad Breeland, uh, cornerback Brashad Breeland from the secondary listed as questionable. And we have a, another member of the secondary who is going to be out, I believe on the COVID list. Um, so they basically have injuries or issues along all three levels. Um, of their defense. So these injuries pretty much benefit both running backs the most, and they benefit the deep threats in the offense. Well, who are those? That's Justin Jefferson for the Vikings. And that is now with a mid, I guess, after week four or week five change of really how he's being utilized, um, Mike Williams, who started the season off as that like prototypical X wide receiver. He was the body control guy. He's the move the chains guy. When we know Throughout his career, he has had a, an extremely deep ADOT. Well, now over the last four to five games, he's transitioned back to this like deep role, um, which is interesting because what they were doing was working seemingly so well. Um, but anyway, he has seen five targets each over the last three games played. Um, and then that blow up spot against Cleveland, he saw 16 targets, no big deal. Um, but this is a guy who I think his ownership is not going to match the chances of him absolutely blowing up here. And he is best played with a member from the Vikings. Either Dalvin Cook or Justin Jefferson are my vote for 
highest chance of being that guy. That's how I view that game environment, the game situation. Anything to add there? No. <laughs> all right. <laughs> no, not at all. I mean, I think you summed it up. I think I think if, I, I'm thinking about that like exactly the same way. Um, okay, cool. Definitely on board Jefferson, Dalvin, uh, less of Thielen. Um, Thielen's much more touchdown dependent, and uh, he can get there, right? Um, but it's just he's so much more he's so much more touchdown dependent that I have a hard time. Uh, wanting to be like to aggressively target him. Yep. With you. Yeah. All right. I'm going to pick one more game environment that I think is rather sneaky. And then I want to hear a couple from you. I apologize if I steal your thunder here, but this Seattle, yeah. this Seattle Green Bay game, man, their likeliest scenario, which is how the field is viewing this spot, likeliest scenario is. This game is going to play close and the field is viewing it as a game with a high likely chance uh, or high likelihood, excuse me, of playing to a a slugfest, right? You know, back and forth um, field position battle, neither team really able to separate themselves. But what else do we have working for this? Well, we have a little bit of a narrative alert and I don't really pay too much attention to it. But when when it's a high profile player where we know that they have a history of like being these kind of narrative driven players. Um, and I would 100% as a Packers fan classify Aaron Rodgers as a narrative player. This is a dude who gets pissed off if somebody breathes on him wrong. Um, but so he just got shit on for the past 10 days about this whole COVID saga that's going on. He got activated today and he will play tomorrow on the opposite side of that. We have, Russell Wilson coming back off injury and we have a game that has high playoff implications for the Seattle Seahawks fighting for positioning in the NFC West. So where does this all come together? Do both offenses have the pieces to turn this game into a shootout? And my answer is a resounding yes. That is not, I must be clear, that is not the most likely scenario, the most likely outcome of this game environment. But Aaron Jones, Devontae Adams, Marquez Valdez-Scantling, Aaron Rodgers on one side. You can add A.J. Dillon for the, the burst runs up the gut that we've seen out of him, too, to that puzzle, if you would like. Seattle side, D.K. Metcalf, intermediate to deep threat, work in the sidelines. Tyler Lockett, who can seemingly go off for 200 yards receiving uh, at, on any given whim as long as he sees the volume. We have um, a running back unit for Seattle who is dinged up would be an understatement the seahawks are not activating chris carson we had alex collins who missed uh practices this week um but he will be the starting running back and then we have the depth guys in travis homer and rashad penny so we know seattle would like to run the football slow the game down manage the game until the fourth quarter where they look to win it right are they is that the likeliest plan of attack for the Seahawks in my mind this week, I, I have a little bit more hesitation to just declare that we're going to see the Seahawks come out and try and just run the football and, and slow this game down. So all this kind of comes together to form a situation where like this chance has a higher than fields perception chance of turning into something that is highly, highly valuable with both of these teams having fairly concentrated offenses. Your thoughts. That was my game. So yes, you did steal my thunder, you jerk, you monster. Um, I don't think it's going to be. 
the ownership, this is another one of those games, and we've encountered these games multiple times while doing this show, where we see uh, the field playing plays from the game, but not uh, stacking the game, right? Like we see some decent ownership projections, not enormous, but like, let me go pull them up to what the most recent numbers are. Where's that, where's that game? Um, you know, Aaron Jones projecting for over 10%. Devontae Adam, Adams projecting for huge ownership because there's all the RB value. Uh, Matt Kevin Lockett projecting around 10%. So there's some, there's not huge, but there's some decent ownership on these games. Um, both of these offenses are relatively concentrated, right? Robert Tanyan's hurt. So the Packers are like basically Aaron Jones, Devontae Adams, MVS. Uh, the Seattle Seahawks are basically Metcalf Lockett and their run game. Um, so, you know, you've got concentrated offenses. I know the reasons why the game can fail, right? Slow pace, blah, blah, blah. Like there, there's every possibility the game just ends up being slow paced and, and kind of a, you know, nothing super exciting comes out of it. Um, but these are also two, and I think I read this in the Oracle. These are two of the most, uh, the two of the best quarterbacks in the NFL with, with groups of elite skill position players. And, you know, why do you not want, like, that's, that's what we want to target, right? Like that, that we should be wanting to target those spots when we can get them at low ownership. So yeah, the game could fail, um, but that's a risk I am entirely happy and willing to take uh, here because I think the upside is just tremendous. So yeah, you, you stole it. You summed, you summed it up. Yeah, that's that's my you, bad. You monster. Uh, that's my. <laughs> I forgive you. I don't. Well, I guess the way that I'll say this is, if going to this game for a one-off, the player likeliest to provide what you're looking for, for me, from my perspective, is Tyler Lockett. Um, he and DK Metcalf are priced within three hundred dollars of each other. They're priced in this middle range of wide receiver pricing, which I love this week because not a lot of people are going to be going there. Like I talked about earlier, it's a very stars and scrubsy feel to this slate. What does Tyler Lockett have going for him? Well, he's playing a defense that plays high levels of zone coverage, high levels of cover two. What typically is the position that excels against those coverages? It's typically the slot wide receiver. And we know that Tyler Lockett has a fairly high slot snap rate. Also, Kevin King is returning to health for the Packers oh, and should be should be the starting slot corner for this week. So uh, that is a matchup that I highly am highly interested to look to exploit. And we know that Tyler Lockett kind of has this bad rap or bad name value behind him because when he fails, he fails so hard. I like that this week because he carries such a wide range of outcomes where he could end the week as the highest scoring wide receiver on the slate. And so that is a player that I am highly interested in, um, particularly at this low ish ownership from one of the game environments that I've singled out as one of my favorite this week. All right. Anything left to add on that game? I just love when a guy comes back from injury and the team is probably like, yay, we got one of our starters back. And the CFS players are like, yay, their team just got worse. <laughs> yay. Yeah, seriously. And we saw, um, oh God, what's his name? That's Kevin King, um, by the way, in case you didn't pick up on that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Roswell Douglas, we, caught, we saw him come in and step up for this defense, man. Um, and now we're getting Kevin King likely stepping back into uh, a starting role. Um, so yeah, expect Eric Stokes on the perimeter. Expect the... Same duo of Darnell Savage and Adrian Amos on the back end playing safeties. Um, and Chandon Sullivan should be the opposite 
wide cornerback. Uh, so path of least resistance target Kevin King. Got it. Are there any other game environments that you see from the slate um, that are not either being viewed as a top game environment from the field or are going a little bit overlooked here? Yeah, so what's weird is my answer to that question is no, which is common for me to say. Um, but I, I don't think that, that is the case this uh, this week. I feel like I feel like we are I, my my focus is pretty narrow. Um, and I'm happy for it to be like I said, like I, I like when I can sort of limit my my player, my scope, and it's rare for me to be able to do so um, like to this degree. So I'm not really interested in attacking uh, anything else like that's, you know, that's that's the list. Dude, I loaded that question so hard. I'm kind of the same. Uh, <laughs> I'm over here talking about my two favorite games, game situations, game environments, and they're the only two really outside of the top offenses that are really, uh, I guess, worthy of our attention this week. I'll put it that way. What I'll do is I'll go through and kind of eliminate games where we shouldn't have a high level um, of interest. The first, Philadelphia and Denver. Denver are basically back to health. No Fant is back. They have Jared Judy back. They have basically our entire offense plus the dual running back uh, scheme or I guess utilization that they use out of that backfield. So this is a team against Philadelphia who's best attacked on the ground um, and they have a split backfield and they're at full health. So not a lot of interest for me there. Philadelphia, same thing, but kind of for a different reason. Um, they basically just have all these offensive pieces who see heavy snaps and don't do a lot with them. Quez Watkins, Watkins, dude, looking at his snap rates, he's played like 85% or more of the snaps the last four games, which is insane because he sees like two or three targets a game. Uh, it's, it's absolutely mind boggling. But um, so I don't have a lot of interest in either of those teams. The game environment does not set up well for something where we can look to kind of say catch lightning in a bottle for lack of a better phrase. How do I want to play Quez Watkins so much? Dude, I have been and it has not been. Because he just has <laughs> like so much upside. And Dude. like, you know, like and you, you watch him and he's so fast. And it's like, yeah, he's the guy you expect to get a couple of like 80 yard touchdowns over the course of a season. But like, it just hasn't been happening. No, his one long reception, he got chased from behind and he runs like a four, three something and got tackled at the one. It's like, what? I, actually, I think he fumbled too, but it was recovered. I don't know. I don't remember. It was like in week two. Uh, anyway, yeah. I've got, um, you know, like some of these guys, like I, I have this bad habit of getting like attached to perceived upside. Um, and then I have a bad, ha- like it's hard for me sometimes to get away from it. Um, where like I believe Quez Watkins has a ceiling. Um, you know, like Robbie Anderson is my, is another curse like this. Uh, Mike Williams, I played the last couple of weeks, despite the fact that his role has changed. And I was like, okay, the Chargers are clearly going to be back to the old gangs. He's been super successful at it. Um, and then, you know, but nope, um, they haven't. And so like, I, I need to be, I need to, like, that's a leak in my game. I need to get better at being willing to recognize when I'm wrong on a player and move away from them. Yeah, man, I tried to uh, I tried to be that voice of reason with Robbie. And then I last week, I'm like, play Robbie, dude, let's go. So that didn't work out too well either. Uh, sweet. <laughs> the I I got to say, before we continue this kind of game environment discussion, well, I guess it is in the long those lines, but 
I have far less interest in this Detroit and Pittsburgh game than I think the field does. How are you viewing that game environment? I want nothing of it. Like, so, okay. I wrote in the Oracle about floating plays and, you know, that's one of the regular Oracle questions. And I was really struggling with that question. And I wanted to come up with something outside of just the main game environments. Um, and so I mentioned, you know, Andre Harris and Deontay Johnson. Um, as just I think plays that get, uh, you know, it's a narrow offense with the injuries they've had. And so you can project a lot of volume for Nadia Harris and Deontay Johnson. Um, and so I, I, I put them in there. But the problem there, there's two problems there. One is they could potentially be attractive if no one was on them. But that's not the case, right? Like they're, uh, they're Deontay is, I was surprised when I went to look at ownership. Um, I tend to like poke around through ownership during the show uh, to see where the most updated projections are. And Deontay is projecting as the second highest wide receiver on the slate, which just yields nuts to me. Um, and Najee Harris is projecting as the highest owned of the, the, the elite tier running backs. I'd sooner play Najee than Deontay. Um, but at those levels of ownership, like, it's, it's hard for me to want to get that excited about playing players on an overall bad offense, right? And like workload is king for running backs. Najee is a play. His floor is immense, right? His floor is ridiculous because of his, his workload. Um, but I'm, his ceiling is somewhat more questionable. And, you know, yeah, you can make a case that any of his games, uh, you know, if he got if he got he fell into the end zone one more time, he would have had a much bigger game. Like, well, yeah, no shit. <laughs> Add six points you and score, and the score their score looks higher. Like, imagine that. Um, but like the Steelers have not been a good offense. They've struggled against really mediocre defenses this season. You know, like Big Ben has not has not looked good. You know, they can get a lot of volume and it just doesn't result in a lot of yardage because he like they, they've had to redesign their entire passing attack into this very short area attack because Ben can no longer throw deep. So, you know, Deontay Johnson can get eight catches for 70 yards. You remember some of the Juju Smith Schuster lines from last season? We'd have like a 10 catch game for four yards or something like that. Like that kind, that kind of stuff's in the cards. And like, that's awesome for floor, but you know, at their places, you need more ceiling. And I'm just not sure the ceiling is there. Like, they're rock-solid floor plays. And if you're in a small field tourney where you oh, love yeah. the rest of your roster and that's the price point you're at, like, I wouldn't say you're wrong to put them in. Um, but for larger stuff, I don't know that they have the ceiling you need um, to take down a large tourney. And at the ownership that they're generating, uh, it just feels to me like, and Pat Freermouth is the second highest on tight end. So, like, at that kind of ownership, like it's weird to me to see um, so much ownership on a team that has. I'm, I'm trying to see like what order where where they're ranked in their team total, uh, and I I don't know where it is, but I don't think it's high. Like, what are they projected for? Like low to mid twenties something? Where is it? So it's, it's Yeah, they're 25.25. So that's higher than you would think. Yeah, but like that's not good, right? Like, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, uh, six, seven, uh, seven teams on the main slate projected for more points than the Steelers. Um, so it's just hard for me to get super excited about that offense. Like, I don't know, again, rock solid floor plays. If you're in a small field tourney, and sometimes in small field tourneys, it's more about avoiding landmines than it is about hitting you know, ceiling and reposition. Um, so fine. 
But like at the level of ownership, I just I can't have that much interest in them in the really large field stuff. I am 100% with you. I lofted you a softball there. Um, I, I'm like, you echo my thoughts exactly on the situation. Look at Deontay Johnson, who's priced at 6.8, so almost 7K. So we expect him, based on DraftKings pricing algorithm, to basically have two games where he's gone for 4X that price this season, right? Because they, as JM has talked about kind of in other places on the site, the DraftKings is trying to set up the pricing in a way that players are hitting 4x salary about every, once every four games. Well, look at Deontay Johnson. He has five games this season with more than 10 targets. So he has a, three games of 13 targets, one game of 12, and one game of 10. He has also put up double-digit fantasy points in every game this season. He's one of only three or four wide receivers to do that. So rock-solid floor, right? He's gone over 100 yards receiving once. And it was in his 12 target game. He has peaked at 24.2 fantasy points. So he has not hit 4x salary multiplier once this season. Okay, Najee Harris got it. We got it with, uh, or sorry, we got it with Deontay. Najee Harris, one game all season with 100 yards rushing or more. So we know playing on DraftKings, the bonus is highly valuable to us because it's worth half a touchdown. He has one game of more than 25.2 fantasy points. And that came in his record shattering 19 target game. That's still crazy to think about. He had 19 targets. Has a running back ever had 19 targets? Like, is that a record? Is that actually a record? I think it is a record. I have to go look. It probably is. Yeah. 19 targets. Absolutely insane. He, he failed to score in that game, but he put up 14 receptions for 102 yards and hit the receiving bonus. So he has games of 16.8 fantasy points, 21, 24.7, 25.2, 21, that 31.2 game on 19 targets, 19.1, and 5.9 for week one against Buffalo. So yes, the workload is the expected highest or best on the slate. I still have my doubts on his ability to provide a score that we would be sorry about missing. He basically has to put up 32 to 35 fantasy points to even put up a score where we feel sorry about missing that. So how does he get that? Well, if he's not going to hit the rushing bonus, he's going to need multiple touchdowns and probably six to seven targets to reach that level uh, of score where we would feel bad not having. So I am below the field on all members of this game. Uh, I agree with your assessment as well. We talked about Tampa Bay. Let's just quickly talk about this game environment. Um, what do we have with Tampa Bay? What, are, what have been our biggest concerns with Tampa Bay offense uh, over the past year and a half? And my answer is concentration or expected volume, right? Well, what do we have this week? I was waiting for the news, the injury news, and it wasn't around Chris Godwin. It was actually around Scotty Miller. Scotty Miller is was um, not activated, but they opened his practice window earlier this week, um, coming off of their bye uh, for a return from the IR. We've seen Scotty Miller kind of be the wide receiver four on this team. So my thinking was with Antonio Brown out, with Rob Gronkowski out, and with a questionable Chris Godwin, who only got in a Friday practice this week, and that was pretty notable to me coming out of their bye. Right. If he wait, if he didn't get a practice until Friday coming out of the bye, 
that's pretty notable. However, with the lack of pass catchers that this team had, my thinking was that if Godwin was truly questionable, if he was truly, they did not know if he was going to play or not as of Saturday, they likely would have activated um, Scotty Miller. Instead, what did they do? They brought up Darren Fells, a tight end from the practice squad, and they brought up Rashad Perriman, rest in peace to him, uh, from their practice squad as oh, well. Under so do either of these guys... Year. <laughs> yeah, right? He's going to score four times and we're all going to be sunk. I know. <laughs> but these, these two guys are not players that we expect to be involved in this offense really at all. So what does that mean to me? I'd expect the Buccaneers to continue their heavy 11 personnel rate. I expect Mike uh, Evans, Chris Godwin to play. I'd expect them both to be on the field relatively almost every snap. I'd expect um, Tyler Johnson to be operating as the wide receiver three in this offense. And that is almost a direct step in for an Antonio Brown role. So we've seen everything from a, he's typically playing in the 60 to 65%, uh, sometimes up into the seventies snap rate. But we've seen everything from six to seven targets to double-digit targets from that role. So an interesting way that I think I'm going to actually pull the trigger on this this week uh, to generate a little bit of additional leverage is a quadruple team stack of Tampa Bay. This is, this is the offense where I expect to be the most sure thing for fantasy points to come. We look at the matchup against Washington. They've allowed the most fantasy points per game to opposing quarterbacks. They've allowed the second most fantasy points to opposing wide receivers. We look at the state of Tampa Bay's offense. They have basically those three wide receivers. They have Leonard Fournette, who's been, you know, closer to a workhorse running back over the last half of the season than um, we've seen out of him in the past. And we have this duo of tight ends in Cameron Bray and OJ Howard. Those players combined have one receiving touchdown on the season. And that's with Gronkowski out for half of the season. We have Leonard Fournette, who typically sees in the six to seven, five to six really target range. Um, he, he has been in a fairly tight range of expected outcomes as far as target goes with all but one game between four and seven targets. So that's a valid expectation for Leonard Fournette here. Possibility to see, you know, onesie twosies additional there. We have the tight ends who have combined for about seven targets a game for as long as Rob Gronkowski has been out. So if those are the only options for this past team this week, and the tight ends and Leonard Fournette are expected to combine for about 14 to 15 targets, how many pass attempts do we expect Tom Brady to have? Well, he's every game but two been at 40 pass attempts or more. And both of those games, he checked in at 36 pass attempts. Week seven, a blowout win, 38 to three against Chicago. Week two, a blowout win, 48 to 25 against Atlanta. So if Washington can score a couple of touchdowns, we should expect Tom Brady to pass the football 40 or more times. If only 14 to 15 of those targets are going to the running back and tight end position, that leaves solid 25, 26 targets for the three wide receivers forly mentioned, or I guess I haven't mentioned them yet, but, or yes, I did. But that leads me to this interesting thing that I've been playing around with this week is playing Tom Brady with Mike Evans and Tyler Johnson and Chris Godwin. 
that combined salary is for the wide receivers. We have a combined salary of 14,000 for Godwin and Evans plus 3.3 for Tyler Johnson. So that is a 17.3 total salary for those three positions. What is the 4X multiplier on that? Well, that is 69.2 fantasy points. So can or is it likely that these three players together can put up like almost 70 fantasy points? And my answer is like, actually, yeah, this is it's kind of weird to think about. But like, actually, yeah, like they can. And if if they are doing that, it likely means that Tom Brady is, you know, throwing for 350 plus yards and four to five touchdowns, which can he do it? Holy crap. He has one, two, three, four, five games this season where he's thrown for four or five touchdowns. So this whole like this massive player block is a is a pretty hefty allocation of salary because it's half of your salary on the week. But it is one of the more sure things that I see on the slate. And so something that I've been playing around with a very uncommon four person team stack. What are your thoughts on that? I like it. And so let me kind of dig in here. So one is where I think you get risky with team stacks like this is when everyone projects for like high, high ownership, because then you know that like, if not all three of the, like all three of the receivers hit, then you know, there's going to be a bunch of rosters out there who only have two of them. Right. Um, and, and they have the two right ones and, and you're, and you, you have the two right ones, but also the wrong one. And in this one, in this game, like we see, Tom Brady projected around 7% or so ownership. Mike Evans projected pretty high. Godwin's ownership is not projected super high, but it, it'll it'll creep up now that he's, you know, like uh, he's, his injury situation has been cleared up. Tyler Johnson's ownership is likely to decrease. It's currently projected about 10%. Um, but that projection, I think, was based on uh, more possibility of Godwin missing. So I, it's going to be... I, you know, you'll see a few Tom Brady double stacks. Like I wouldn't approach the Millie maker this way because there's so many entries in that, that there's going to be enough Tom Brady double stacks covering sort of that base that like, unless you get absolute ceiling outcomes from all three of them, there's going to be rosters that have just the two right ones. But in smaller field stuff, like I love approaching smaller field stuff this way because the goal in smaller field stuff is to avoid landmines. And it's to make sure that you get like kind of locked up production. And, you know, you can have a dud on your roster in small field stuff and still win tournaments um, as long as your overall, you know, the overall score is strong and the and you're getting, you know, good production top to bottom. And so, you know, I think I don't I didn't do the salary math that you said it's about half your salary. Uh, I think it's slightly under that. Right. Um, and so the question is, OK, so you need 80 points, yeah. right? Like you out you at a minimum, you need 80 points to put you in position to like cash uh, to be to not fail. Um, you need, you know, 100 to 110 to put you on path on, on path to win a, a smaller field tournament, probably. And so the question is, you know, what, how likely is that? And so if Brady throws for, you know, four touchdowns and 300 yards, Brady's at 30 points. Cool. If you get like, let's say one of the touchdowns goes to a random dude. Um, so not everything breaks exactly your way, but you get three touchdowns and, you know, of the of Brady's 300 and something passing yards, you get 200 of those yards, maybe 250 uh, and you get three touchdowns. And that's probably like 20 receptions. So 20 receptions is 20 points plus Brady's 30 or 50, 200 or 25. So 250 pass or receiving yards is another 25 points. So you're at 75 points. Three touchdowns is 18 points. You're at 93 points. So, you know, and that seems like a 
not egregious projection, right? Like that's not like everything has to break your way in order for in order for you to get to this point. You know, like that's reasonable. You could you can get there. Um, it doesn't seem outrageous. So I like it. I think that you're just you know you're playing this big block that gets you that locks up the Bucks production in the you know in the most likely scenarios. And I think it is reasonable to think that those guys could get 250 yards and three touchdowns between them. Um, is a you know, what is that? A maybe a 50th to 60th percentile outcome? Like you don't need a 90th percentile outcome to get there. So I think it's that's gonna be that's gonna be Mike Evans by himself, dude. <laughs> then you're then you're winning all the money. <laughs> then, you, then you're winning all the money, right? But there's upside beyond that, right? Like the Bucks are expected to score four touchdowns. So what if you know you add another touchdown onto that group? What if they score five and it goes and it all goes wide receiver? Like there is a legitimate ceiling where all three of those receivers, like because of how concentrated the offense is, without Gronkowski, without Antonio Brown, like there is a foreseeable path where you know Tyler Johnson scores fifteen points and Gronk and Evans both score twenty-five to thirty points and Brady scores thirty-something points and you're rolling. <laughs> Yeah, my uh, I'm actually I'm playing around with that idea for single entry. Uh, my thinking is what would likely push them to do that? Well, we know that Washington has to score two touchdowns. If they score two touchdowns like Tampa Bay and this Brady and Bruce Arians led team who are striving to continually get better as the year goes on, like they're not going to take their foot off the gas, like regardless, uh, unless they're up like 38 to three, like they, they were against Chicago. So that leads me to. If I'm doing that, if I'm going all in there, like I want to have a bring back and that's how this situation would be optimally played for a ceiling for, I guess, for in order to push Tom Brady and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers towards their ceiling. For me, the likeliest bring back the best marriage of salary allocation and expected production is actually JD McKissick at 5.2. And he's one of these lower guys that we didn't talk about in the running back position. And I kind of did that on purpose to talk about him here. Over the last three games, and these are games where we know that Antonio Gibson's snap rates have come down as he's managing this shin fracture injury. Uh, McKissick has seen between 64 and 46% snap rate, 10 targets, 6 targets, and 8 targets. So this is, when you start thinking about how this game is likeliest to play out, well, Tampa Bay is obviously likely to score points. Washington is obviously likely to increase their aggression and they have a coach and a coaching staff that will do that. And that is the important thing to understand here. When you then consider what is like likeliest way for Washington to try and move the football to me, a, a lot of people's answer here is Terry McLaurin. But to me, it is actually JD McKissick against a team that is extremely likely and has shown historically this season that they like to force teams short over the intermediate middle of the field where they can then swarm and tackle after the reception. So that's kind of a thought process of how I want to look to capture guaranteed points for a single entry contest this week. Um, very, very, I guess, strays from the norm or strays from your prototypical GPP thinking. But 
it leaves you a lot of guaranteed points and a lot of options with the rest of your roster. I would have said, I, All right, I don't do you think have it more... actually strays from like the thinking that much, or at least not how I play it. Like, I think there's a lot of upside in 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 ca- in just avoid in capturing like one of the best offenses on the slate and i've at least i've had a fair bit of tournament success in small field stuff by identifying the team that's the least likely to fail making sure i capture the majority of their scoring and then just trying to fill in a few positions around them and again it's it's about trying to like minimize the number of things that you need to have go right and so i think that that's an entirely viable approach um and I've, I've used that to success in, in NBA. I've used it to success in, in NFL. Um, like, you know, the, the thing to realize about really, about really small field things or single entry things, you know, just a few hundred entries is you don't need the absolute ceiling outcome. What you need is to avoid the floor outcomes. And if you can successfully avoid the floor outcomes, you put yourself in a really good position. Yeah, to be clear, this wasn't this isn't a play like that I would be thinking about two weeks ago when you know Tampa Bay's last game against New Orleans, where it was a much different game environment. You know, they still came out and put up twenty seven points, but it was less likely to, and obviously didn't provide this level of fantasy output because now they have a team in Washington who is extremely pass funnel, and they're just bleeding fantasy points to quarterbacks and wide receivers. So. Uh, just an, an interesting dy- dynamic, I think, of everything kind of coming together uh, to make this play valid and viable. We Any other? I, I hope so, because I'm doing it. So I hope nobody else. I, is I feel doing like it. sneaky is like one of the most over like it's the most overused word in the DFS space. And I hate it. And everyone's like, oh, what about this sneaky thing? And I'm like, the sneaky thing is projected at 20 percent ownership, dude. I don't think that word means what you think it means. Like, <laughs> yeah, sneaky, sneaky leverage is is one of my buzzwords, yeah. I think, or buzz phrases, because like I don't think half. Anyway, not a lot of people understand <laughs> what true what true leverage is. They're just discussing pivots, uh, but we digress. But, but that said, like no, I, I I like the play. I think that you're you know you're you're you identify the team that's the least likely to fail, and I think that that's well. <laughs> You could argue the bills too, but like that's least likely to fail and where you have a high degree of confidence where the ball is going. Right? You... Yeah, that's the important part. But we'll look at the bills. We'll, we'll lead directly into that. They have a, an extremely unconcentrated offense. Like they have four now with, I guess you could say even five with Dawson Knox returning this week. Um, pass catchers who are extremely viable in any given game. So it's hard to narrow down where, you know, a, a viable stacking partner with, um, Josh Allen this week when they have Emmanuel Sanders, they have Stefan Diggs, they have Cole Beasley, they have Gabriel Davis, who is arguably the best wide receiver four in the league. They even have Isaiah McKenzie who could step in if there were some injury craziness happen. Um, they have Zach Moss who is going to play this week. They have Devin Singletary. They have Dawson Knox. So like they have all these playmakers on offense that they can just, they don't need to target their wide receiver one Stefan Diggs heavily. Emmanuel Sanders is the wide receiver playing the most snaps on this team because he's kind of this jack of all trades guy who they can move around like the queen chess piece in the formation. Uh, but there's, there's no need for it. My, my biggest interest in this game was Devin Singletary. If Zach Moss was going to miss because we could capture kind of all the goodness, um, the combined goodness from these two guys with, you know, get 80% of that production from one guy uh, against a matchup against the jets who are the worst ranked team against the running back but now like it's just this we don't expect the offense to fail but who do we expect to really succeed here 
I just can't wait for Dawson Knox to get three targets and two touchdowns again. Those are my favorite games. I would love that because that means he's not crushing and it takes away production from everyone else. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, this actually brings up an interesting point, and I'm going to jump over to defense because the most likely way for this offense to fail, as we talked about two weeks ago, or I think it was two weeks ago, is for the Buffalo defense to limit the time of possession and the amount of points from the uh, Jets here. So we've seen it kind of all season. Like, oh, I also want to point out that Buffalo's offense is not as pass heavy as you think it is. I'm going to throw that out there. They are not nearly as pass heavy as you think they are. They basically have a 61% situation neutral pass rate this this year what is the league average the league average is 59 percent. so they are just above league average in situation neutral pass rate what do they do when they have taken a big lead this year they've left their starters in the game until about midway in the fourth quarter but they have run the football they have turned games over to zach moss and devin singletary and they can do that because they're already sharing the snaps in the workload throughout the rest of the game so they're still fresh at the end of the game and that's how they're icing games this year it's not like they are continuing to sling the football into late in the fourth quarter they're leaving their starters on the field but they're not aggressively attacking late in games and that is very different from last year where they were you know leading the league in situation neutral pass rates and they were attacking through the air deep into games they were just going berserk last year like they were yeah. just like fuck you league we're passing all game long no matter what and like yeah they've kind of backed away from that yeah so i just wanted to throw that out there as something that the field is late to the party in realizing what is going on there yeah i can right. with that we've pretty much beat this slate to death are there any other areas you want to discuss quickly before we clean up um a couple of these positions I don't think so. Yeah, I was gonna say we have a couple like sort of positional bits to talk through, but I think we've talked through the keys. We should probably talk a little bit about Dallas at Atlanta or Atlanta at Dallas, because that's another um attractive game stack, I think, or attractive game environment that people are gonna be targeting. And we should think about how Yeah, for sure. Um so I'll just I'll share how I'm appro- how I'm approaching that. One is I would not play um this isn't Buffalo and this especially isn't Tampa. I wouldn't play Dak without a bring back. Like there's some teams you can play without having a bring back from the other team. Um, you can play the quarterback, but I think there's other teams that you really need to bring back. And Dallas is a team that will not keep their foot on the gas unless their opponent forces them to. And so Dak is actually projecting it. That's the highest on quarterback on the slate right now, which is, which is interesting to me. And I don't think it's a bad play, um, but I think if you play Dak, you need to, you need to bring it back with someone in Atlanta and uh, my stubborn ass uh, is finally going to come around and say, Cordell Patterson, I guess, is probably that guy, right? Like, out of the backfield, they're going to use him uh, in all kinds of creative ways. Uh, the Atlanta whiteouts are not my thing, but I think you will probably want to you probably want to use, you know, one of Patterson or Diggs and build game stacks of that or don't touch that game. Uh, as we talked about last week, Ezekiel Elliott is more floor than ceiling these days. Um, and I think so. I think the way to attack this game is either don't play it or stack it. Um, and, and, you know, Amari is still shockingly cheap. He didn't hit last week as, as you know, large as high as highly on shock, but he's still kind of shockingly cheap. Um, Lamb is, you know, I'd rather I take Amari over Lamb personally, um, but I would I would stack the game or not or not attack it at all like, or leave it alone entirely. 
that's how I that's how I think about that one. What do you think? Matt? I'm with you there, actually. I'm with you there, actually. And I think it all revolves around Dallas, actually, as the likeliest team to control pretty much all aspects of this game. So what have they done this season? Dak Prescott, obviously the 58 pass attempts in week one against Tampa Bay. We've talked God. ad nauseum about how this offense has changed after that point um, and developed into a, an offense that will basically try and take what the opposition will give them until they are forced otherwise. So what has that led to? Week two, 27 pass attempts in a 20 to 17 win over the Chargers. Week three, 26 pass attempts in a blowout win over the Eagles. Week four, 22 pass attempts in a 36 to 28, so high scoring and close game against Carolina. Week five, 32 pass attempts in a blowout win against the Giants. Then we get to Dak Prescott's last two games he's played. The second to last one was week six against New England with that strange game that they both teams scored all these points in the fourth quarter and went to overtime. Dak Prescott ended up with 51 pass attempts in an overtime game. Week nine last week against Denver in a blowout loss. Dallas didn't score until the fourth quarter. A blowout loss to Denver, 16 to 30. Dak still, they trailed the entire game. He still only ended up with 39 pass attempts. So this is not an offense that is game planning to go out and pass the heels off of their opponent. They are very balanced. They are going to look to run the football, and they're going to look to do so through Zeke and Tony Pollard. They also have all these options offensively. Yes, Blake Jarwin is out, but they still have Dalton Schultz. They have Amari Cooper. They have CeeDee Lamb. They're getting Michael Gallup back. They have Zeke, they have Tony Pollard. So they have all these pieces where they're not a concentrated offense. So if you think that Dallas controls this game, I am almost 100% stay away. So I agree the, how you should be playing the spot. If you're playing it is you should be playing it as a, at least minimum of two from one team and one from the other with the potential for more. If you expect this game to really take off. Sorry, can, I I actually, can I actually correct myself on one thing? Um, yes. I actually think the one play from this game I'd be willing to play naked uh, is our good friend Michael Gallup, um, just because of his price. Like, he's 4K, and I could at 4K, I could see him. You know, Atlanta, the one thing Atlanta does well on defense, and there really isn't much, um, is they're pretty good at limiting deep passing. Mm-hmm. But... You know, Gallup is a talented receiver with a very talented quarterback. And so, you know, he could succeed despite Atlanta's tendency to limit deep passing. And, you know, he can get there on on two or three catches at his price and put up 20 points. Um, you know, he's a, he's a, he's still an immensely talented receiver. So he's the one guy I'd still consider if I wasn't stacking the game. But even then, he's still kind of he's kind of on the fringes for me. Samesies. And the the only reason why, or I guess the biggest contributing factor why is the injury to Blake Jarwin. So we can expect Gallup to actually be on the field with a, you know, a pretty high snap rate here um, on an offense that likes to utilize the two tight end look. So, uh, yep, I agree there. Um, I agree with that overall assessment of that game. Any other games that you want to talk about before we kind of clean up these positions? I don't think so. I think we can cost it to the, you know, when we come back at the end for questions, we can see if we missed anything that anyone wants us to talk through. Money. All right. Quarterback position, expecting ownership on Dak, expecting ownership on Josh Allen. We just talked about both of those guys 
What are your overall thoughts on the position this week fairly quickly? Yeah. So again, like I'm, I'm pretty narrow this week. So I'll play Dallas Atlanta game stacks. I'll play Chargers Vikings game stacks. I will play uh, Packers Seahawks game stacks. Um, and then I will play a lot of Tom Brady. Um, I will, and I will play some Josh Allen uh, and, uh, and some Carson Wentz. Um, you know, like Carson Wentz is sort of, he sticks out like a sore thumb as the, one of the highest price or sorry, highest projected team totals, um, all have very expensive quarterbacks. And then Carson Wentz is like 5,900. So of the value quarterbacks, like he'd be my guy. Um, and the other, I think that same kind of game stack we did a couple weeks ago with Wentz, Pittman and Taylor all together in that, um, the sort of Colts onslaught, I think is entirely viable. Uh, and then I, I don't know, I'm, I'm torn on this one. Like Jalen hurts, generally manages to get there and I think his prices come up some and I think there's so many other strong quarterbacks on the slate that I don't know if I'm going to have him in my pool this week um like he's just a guy who so rarely fails and has significant ceiling that he's kind of always like on my radar but I don't know if I'm going to end up on him this week yeah I'm kind of with you I'm um pretty much extremely narrowed where I want to attack I think Justin Herbert is probably on par with Tom Brady's ceiling this week and isn't being treated that way. Um, so I'll have a good deal of Herbert where I am not attacking and overstacking this Tampa Bay game. Um, but Tom Brady, Justin Herbert, and then all the way down, or I guess the other side of that game too, in Kirk cousins, less likely, um, that he's the one to destroy this game in the slate. It's much more likely to be Herbert. So I'm a little bit, off that unless the I need the additional salary because Herbert's at 7.3 and Cousins is at 6.1. I like Wentz and I think um and actually um this is something that came up with my now weekly discussion with Todd prior to this podcast. He brought up that the you know one of the optimal ways to play this game is to approach it as Carson Wentz <laughs> with Jonathan Taylor and Michael Pittman, like we had talked about before. Also, a quick break. I know we're kind of strapped for time, but uh, I talked to, Pot, to Todd while I was in the car with my family running some errands this morning. And my one-year-old was Your wife throwing a fit. That? <laughs> you know, no, she, she loved it. She, uh, she, she was like, he sounds like an actor. I can't think of his name. I was like, Malkovich. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but um, no, my, my one-year-old was throwing a fit. And he's like, can I talk to him? I was like, yeah, dude, for sure. He was on the, you know, the speaker in the car and he started talking and my son fell asleep within 30 seconds. It was incredible. <laughs> okay. Like, so Todd, the, Todd just, Todd, the angry child whisperer. That's like, that's kind of delightful. Yeah. That's kind of delightful. I love it. He's got this Papa bear vibe, man. I love it. That's awesome. Uh, so, but yeah, so that was, I think, um, one of the bigger things that came out of my discussion with Todd that Todd brought up that, um, you know, that's a way, an easy way to capture all those points and be different at the same time. Um, so I like Carson Wentz and I like Carson Wentz paired with two of his pass catchers. Um, and I think we should regard Jonathan Taylor as one of those pass catchers uh, this yeah. week. Agree, my cool. friend. Agree. 
That's where I'm at on uh, quarterback. We talked about running back ad nauseum, wide receiver. Let's quickly, I'll let you go first, quickly cover up any loose ends there. Yeah, I don't have a lot of loose ends here. Like, I think that for the most part, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm with the guys in the stacks. And, you know, I was, a, I was a little interested in like Deontay, even, even James Washington, because he's so cheap. Um, but not with, uh, not with the ownership they're projected to carry. Like the there's like the only wide receivers <clears throat> that we haven't talked about that I consider playing sort of naked um, outside of these game environments, like Jerry Judy, I think, or even Cortland Sutton, um, both have upside. And Philly has been, you know, not good um, defensively. I think you can make a case there. Uh, I think you could at least make a case for Jarvis Landry. I mean, Jarvis Landry is kind of in the pretty similar boat to where he was last week um, when he was massive chalk and failed. Um, and here he's, you know, if you think about New England kind of structuring their defense to stop what the opponent is best at, and they're going to structure it to stop the run. And they're probably going to try to be aware of, you know, Donovan Peoples-Jones and his like 80 yard touchdowns, um, which kind of leaves some opening for Jarvis Landry in the middle of the field. So, you know, those are thin plays. Like, I don't feel super strongly about either of those, but I think they're at least in the. I think they're at least worth considering. Um, if you're playing Buffalo and you want to think about bringbacks, I would say it's uh, the middle of the field guys for the Jets, which is like Jamison Crowder um, and um, and Ryan Griffin of OWS fame, who uh, helped help Ryan Griffin helped win Sonic a yeah. million dollars. He was in the Millie Maker lineup. Um, So I think there's, you know, that's, but these are all thin. Like these are, these are not, these are not high confidence plays on my part. Uh, these are plays that I think if you're playing a bunch of lineups, you can consider them uh, as part of your pool. Or if you land at a salary spot that fits one of those guys and you, you can consider saying, yeah, okay, like that's fine. I won't rebuild my roster to, to get off of this. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't prioritize either of those guys. Yeah, so I'm with you. I'm game stack heavy, game environment heavy this week at the right receiver position. The one offense that I think the pass catchers are extremely viable, but there's only ownership expected on one guy, and that's Jacksonville Jaguars against Indy. This game, we know that Jacksonville is going to struggle to run the football against Indianapolis, who is already a pass funnel defense. James Robinson is banged up, so they have a banged up James Robinson and a ageless Carlos Hyde, we'll call him, um, out of the backfield. So we're likely to see another one of these crazy spike pass game or pass attempt weeks out of the Jaguars here. You know, Trevor Lawrence has two games of 51 pass attempts or more already this season, which is crazy. He has a game of 41 pass attempts, and then his standard range of outcomes is somewhere in this 33 to 35 pass attempt range. So if he's Passing the football 33 to 35 times as a floor here with the chance to see 50 or more pass attempts. I think the pass catchers on Jacksonville are extremely interesting. The field is looking at Dan Arnold at 3.5. He's a great play, great play on paper. You know, he's seen 17 targets over the last two games. Um, I will say, though, he's playing about 74% um, of the offensive snaps since he's come over to Jacksonville. So he's not on the field as an every down tight end. That said, he's in a route in 98% of his snaps that come on pass plays. So that again, he's an extremely solid on paper play. The most 
interesting play to me from this side of the game is Marvin Jones. At 5.8, he falls into that mid-range tier of pricing. So ownership expected to be extremely low. He's direct leverage off of a chalky Dan Arnold, and he has a downfield role. And that is all valuable against an Indianapolis team who has struggled on with their cornerbacks and safeties in coverage this season. So I also am kicking around the idea. I don't think I'll go here just because I'm only playing five rosters, but LaVisca Chenault for all my MME guys, this could be like the perfect matchup for him with this short area role against an Indianapolis team who is extremely, or I guess, have been lacking in the pursuit areas of their defense this year. So I like LaVisca more than I like Jamal Agnew at a similar price. I think Agnew and Dan Arnold are where the ownership is going to go. That's all I got wide receiver. Let us talk about them tight ends real quick. Marvin Jones, you're uh, Marvin Jones is your, your dude. Your uh, best Marvin ball dude. Jones, man is my best ball dude. That guy. I love him. Him and cooks. Him and Cooks were heavy, heavy ownership for me this year, this mm-hmm. season. All right. But the rookies. Yeah, but the rookies. I, the, <laughs> most, the highest owned rookie I had was Devonta Smith, so uh, I guess that's worked out okay. But even he was chilling around Brandon Cooks for the entirety of the draft season, so I don't have overwhelming ownership on him. I got a lot of chase because he started, he was slipping. Most of my best ball drafts were towards uh, close to the season. And he was just falling so far because like he's dropping the football in camp and people are like freaking out about that. And so he was, his ADP dropped to like 70 or 80. But anyway. Yeah. I have late. Yeah. Anyway, (laughs) we digress. (laughs) Not there here nor there. Yeah. Yeah. So the tight end position ownership um, expected heaviest on the aforementioned Dan Arnold. Also Pat Fryermuth who has, um, oh God, Eric Abram coming back uh, yeah. for this game. So he's kind of off my radar completely. He's expected 16 to 20% ownership, depending on where you look. Um, and then it's really a smattering of medium to low ownership after that. The names Kyle Pitts, Ricky Seals, Jones, Jared Cook, uh, X'd out of my player pool completely. Tyler mm-hmm. Conklin, uh, yeah, that's a tweener. Um, OJ Howard, Dallas Goddard, all projected for sub 12% ownership. So extremely spread out um, at the tight end position. You know who we don't see expected for ownership? Brian Griffin. He's my <laughs> Dude, he's my dude this week, man. Sonic's if with you, man. Sonic is so excited for that play. Dude, if you're paying down at the tight end position, why not pay all the way freaking down? Like, is, is Dan Arnold's expected range of outcome on 74% of the snaps greater than... Um, Ryan Griffin, who has been like a 94% plus snap rate player in the absence of Tyler Croft, like maybe like Jacksonville's expected to run a hell of a lot more plays this game, but I don't think it's worth the thousand in salary. Uh, so I'll have some Dan Arnold. I'll have some Ryan Griffin. And that's really kind of where I'm focused on this week at the tight end position. I think Kyle Pitts, uh, is interesting at least. However, he is the main point of emphasis on their offense. Dallas knows that. So I'd expect Dallas to dedicate some additional attention. I don't think we're going to see a shadow or anything from Javon Diggs or anything crazy like that, but I'd expect additional attention all game on Kyle Pitts. Um, And then 
The other guy who I think is actually viable at the if you're paying up ish at the tight end position, that's TJ Hawkinson. Yes. Um, but I don't yes. I don't like that game environment overall. But if that game environment were to turn into something that is not shit, it's going to be through TJ Hawkinson. I think. Yeah, I, I like. Yeah, I agree on Hawkinson. The question is, do I want to pay five k at tight end? Um, I mean, there's there's so much value yeah. this week. You could do it if you want to, right? Um, Dan Arnold kind of feels like good shock because he has a strong role. We've seen him get a lot of volume. Um, you know, this is like, it's a soft spot in the, in the defense. Pat Fryermuth, I am struggling with as the second highest on tight end of the week. And basically really an equivalent ownership of Arnold. Um, they're projected so close that it could, you know, go either way. It feels like an overreaction to a two touchdown game. If I'm, if I'm being, you know, direct about it, right? Like, Dan Arnold got two touchdowns and all of a sudden everyone wants to play him. And like, I get it. Claypool's out. Like I understand that, um, you know, that, that means there's going to be less, uh, you know, less competition, but like, this is still a not good offense. Uh, he's now going to get more, he's, he's getting Ebron back, which introduces some competition. And like, yes, we can look at it as players and say, why would you play, you know, aren't, why would you play Ebron over Firemouth? Firemouth clearly better. Um, but assumption of rational coaching gets you in a lot of trouble in DFS uh, when coaches do irrational things. Like, you know, Eric Ebron's a veteran. Like, he's not going to be just benched because he got hurt. Um, to Firemouth is like, I feel like there's a lot of fragility in that play. I, I very much prefer Arnold. Um, Ryan Griffin, I like my only concern there is the Jets offense has not been passing to the tight end at a high rate at all. And so when Mike White started a couple weeks ago and threw for, you know, 8,000 yards or whatever, uh, I think the tight ends like Croft got two targets and Griffin got one. So it's like three targets total to the tight end position. So that's my only concern. And the question is going to be, well, how adaptable are they essentially? They didn't need to throw there. They, they were focused in the middle of the field, but it went to Carter and Crowder. And so the question is going to be like, well, does that change at all? Um, you know, the, the perimeter is going to be even tougher against Buffalo than it was in that game against the Bengals. Like, I think, you know, at, at the minimum salary, I think he's worth taking some shots on. Uh, I don't feel a strong degree of confidence in him. But I also think there's some other places you can look like, uh, I didn't actually see if Logan Thomas was coming back. I saw one place projecting that he might, but I think I think he's still out, isn't he? He's still out, yeah. Yeah. So like Ricky Seals-Jones has basically been the same play for a few weeks now where he's a reasonably athletic um, tight end who's and he's kind of in that same role that Griffin is like he's playing almost every snap he's in the he's in the Logan Thomas the Logan Thomas role and I think that we can project you know the we know that Washington well, no, project we know that Washington's gonna be throwing a ton um we know that Tampa is more vulnerable in the short and middle areas of the field versus the perimeter and, and so like and we know that Washington has a fairly narrow distribution of volume with basically one healthy wide receiver who's not terrible uh JD McKissick and Ricky Seals Jones so and he's not projecting it like, you know, no ownership. But if if I were, you know, if I were building my allocations, I would have Dan Arnold and Ricky Seals Jones is, is probably higher than Fryermouth. I agree with you on Cook. Like, I don't understand why Cook is popular. Um, that that was a two-way timeshare that has then devolved into a three-way timeshare last week. So that just feels incredibly shaky to me. 
And past that, you're just drawing thin. You're taking stabs. Like you could take stabs at Noah Fant. I think Hawkinson's viable. You know, Dallas Goddard is like fine as well. Like we know he's, you know, he's shown ceiling before when uh when he's had the the um the role to himself when Zach Ertz hasn't been there and now he's got that. But like that offense has been struggling and it has it's been struggling through the air, especially. Um Dalton Schultz is like his price has got kind of gotten away from him. Like what a world where Dalton Schultz is the third most expensive tight end on the slate. Um, so like, you know, Dawson Knox, you're like, okay, he's going to get four targets and maybe he'll get two touchdowns on those four targets, but like paying 4,500 for that is tough. So there's, this is a, like, you know, some, some tight end weeks, you have a, you have a plethora of viable options and some tight end weeks are terrible. And this is a terrible one. And on, on terrible tight end weeks, I think you look for cheap volume. And then I think you look for, where you can correlate the tight end with your game stack. So like Ricky Seals Jones, I love in my Brady lineups. Um, Schultz, I would just, I would eat the price and play if I'm in in stacks of that game. Um, And that's probably where I'd want my pits exposure as well. Uh, You know, Dan Arnold, I think you can play anywhere, but I'll play him a lot more in my Colts lineups um, and my Carson Wentz lineups. So like like overall, I think I want to just focus on my, on the the cheap guys who project for good volume. And I want to focus on the, um, the game environment stacks. I will point out, and I, Johnu Smith is like, is he just broken now? Because he's all the way down at the minimum salary. Um, he's 2,500. He's projecting for like 3% ownership. And this was a guy who like, for years, the sto- on the Titans, it was like, he's so talented. He's so athletic. He can break one from anywhere. They just need to get him more volume. And Cleveland is a defensive scheme that has shown vulnerability to tight ends for years. Um, and I know that Hunter Henry seems to have kind of eclipsed Jonu in uh, in in role. Um, you know, Hunter Henry's kind of been the more dominant guy there. But like at twenty five hundred, that kind of feels like a risk I'm okay taking. Yeah, I think people are uh, just looking at his plethora of two target games this season yeah but he's had some like five and six target games and i just don't know if he's like kind of fallen by the wayside i know they've been keeping him into block more than they've been keeping henry into block like yeah. he's kind of a player like i'll be i'll be honest i didn't think about him until like two minutes ago and so i haven't like prepared this take at all you know i haven't <laughs> been like let me tell you all the research i've done on johnny smith like i really didn't think of johnny smith until just a couple minutes ago um so i kind of want to dig into that a little more but i think he's interesting um, I want to, I want to look into it more. I don't feel commit. I don't feel like sold on it yet, but, um, but 2,500 man, like you can get a pretty athletic, you know, pretty, pretty, uh, capable tight end at 2,500. That seems like a decent deal at no ownership. Yeah. I mean, the state of the position overall is we really don't have high probability volume anywhere. Right. And Kyle Pitts is the top highest priced tight end on the slate well he's hit double digit targets once this season mm-hmm. we have tj hawkinson in a extreme pace down game where we can expect a pretty poor game environment although he's seen double digit targets three times this year that game environment is pretty crappy overall so for me it is a like a hunt and pray for cheap volume with a touchdown week and for my single entry listeners out there the best on paper play for that to be uh, viable is Dan Arnold, you know, huh. against a Colt against a Colts team who 
just gave up 30 points to the Jets. They have had all these issues covering tight ends. They've had all these issues covering the pass game. They are extreme pass funnel defense and all the reasons I talked about this Jacksonville pass game earlier. So um, I think it's one of those weeks where it's just like, man, I'll take what I can get. If I can get eight to 10 targets at 3,500, like that's something that I am interested in. Yeah, this this feels like a week where like you could legitimately if you get 15 points from your tight end, you're probably feeling really happy about that. And, you know, that's not always the case, right? Like there's some case, some weeks where it's like you need whoever scores 25. Um, but this is a week where like the, the position is so miserable that like it could be that, you know, who someone gets you 15 points at like under 4K, like that's your 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 golden, you're set. I dig it. Let's talk about defense real quick. Um, oh, my favorite position. Yeah, for yeah, for me, uh, I as a single entry three max player, I am keyed in on the Bills and the Colts. Little piece of bar trivia: the Colts are the only defense in the entire NFL that have generated a turnover in every game this season. Uh, they are now playing a Jacksonville Jaguars team who is second to last in turnover margin or differential. So a lot going right for this Colts defense, even though I still expect Jacksonville to score points. I like the floor that the Colts bring to the table. I think I talked about the likeliest way for the Buffalo Bills pass attack to fail this week is through the Bills defense. We've seen this Bills defense, you know, 18 sacks and 19 combined turnovers <laughs> compared to the Colts who have 19 sacks and 20 combined turnovers. These are two of the most aggressive defense. And that's from like a ball hawking perspective. And where does that come from? That comes from how they are coached and it's kind of a defensive identity. So those, I'd like those two defenses uh, for single entry and three max in a week where we, again, don't expect people to be paying up the position. Yeah, like, okay, so first off, it's like, what the hell is with quarterback injuries this year? Like, there are so many backup quarterbacks playing right now. So if you look at the top, like, if you look at the, the list of owner of uh, defenses by ownership, Tennessee, backup quarterback, Arizona against a backup quarterback, Bills against a backup quarterback, Colts against Trevor Lawrence, who's kind of been a backup quarterback, honestly, kind of looks like one so far. A little bit down, Tampa Bay, backup against a backup quarterback. Steelers against a guy who probably should be a backup quarterback. Like, it just feels like it's backup quarterback city this week. And normally, I'm okay, like, embracing more variance at defense and spreading my exposure around more. Um, But, like, why? I, I, I don't know why I would play a defense that's playing against an NFL caliber quarterback uh, when I can play, like there's so many defenses that are going against guys who are just so clearly not ready for the NFL. Um, I think I, I love the Colts call because if you look at the top defenses, like Tennessee is probably not really on my list a lot as um, you know, they're fine, but like they're just, they're projected at the highest ownership and they're falling into that like cheap defense and everyone flocks to the cheap defense bu- uh, bucket. Um, but like, then you look at Arizona, Um, Arizona and Buffalo are projecting for about twice the ownership of Indy. So I'll side with ownership there um, at the most volatile position and, and just say, like, I'd prefer Indy. Like, those are all they're all good, right? Like, all those defenses are viable and could easily put up the top score on the slate. But I will always side with ownership at defense. Um, Steelers D, I think, is in the pool for me. Tampa D, probably not Tampa D. Um, but the one, the one I have that I think might be a little bit more off the board is Eagles D, where... 
I think like a lot has to go right. I mean, you kind of need the Eagles to play from ahead so that they can force um, Denver to get out of the run heavy scheme. And Terry Bridgewater is not an especially mistake prone quarterback, but uh, the Philly defensive line, like their coverage unit is garbage, but their defensive line is really good at um, is a really good pass rushing unit. And they have one of the highest adjusted sack rates on the slate because the Denver O-line is trash. Um, so I think that they're at least in the pool. If you want to kind of, if you want to, get more exposure uh, if you want to broaden your exposure at defense away from kind of those those, those chalkier options. Uh, but you're also looking for like a cheaper one. I think Philly is probably my favorite sub 3K defense. I don't know, though, like I, this is a week where I honestly feel like the ownership on defenses is, is like is, is pretty correct. Yeah, oh I concur. Oh, there we go. It's <laughs> like where'd he go? Aaron, sorry, I was. I didn't know if Aaron was going to jump in. Aaron, we've gotten almost two hours, dude. Do you want to do questions, or you want to get everyone out of here? Yeah, you know, we have three questions, but I think two of them are are better saved for JM on Tuesday. That's from Watton and from ACS. Um, so I see your guys' questions. We're going to save those for Tuesday. Um, but we have one from Metavoom. Um, that I wanted to get to you guys, you especially Hilo. Um, I think it's a common question with a lot of people. Is it How better rude. to just, <laughs> is it better to just use one QB for three max? It depends on your goals. My goals um, have changed as this season even has progressed. I started off the year extremely narrowed in and playing one quarterback across three lineups in three max. What that does is it gives you more bullets for when things go right, but you're basically increasing your variance to a point where it's going to affect your cash rate. Um, and that is, I went, I kind of tried both ways last season as well. Um, you're going to cash at a higher frequency when you spread those out. You're also giving yourself additional outs, which is a way to manage your variance when you target different game environments um, with the bulk of different rosters. So what do I mean by that? If, if you, for this week, if you are playing three out of three Tom Brady with two of his pass catchers, you have to have that go right to even have a chance to cash. But if it does go right, you're going to cash on all three rosters and give yourself a better chance to play for first um having three bullets with that construction as opposed to two <laughs> the other side of that coin is when it doesn't go right you are left with zero chance of anything so it depends on your goals it depends on your how you choose to manage your variance how i am going to attack things going forward and how i have been over the past couple of weeks is on three max roster on three max contests i'm going to attack three different game environments on uh, with one with each roster and give myself additional outs to play for first um, via my roster construction and viewing it as a portfolio. So it depends on what your goals are, what, you know, the, how many entries are in these, the three max contests and how you want to manage variance over the course of a full season. X, you want to add anything to that? that? Like, I think this is, yeah, I feel like, like I see a lot of questions, both within the show and in Discord, where I understand where the question is coming from. But there's there's a lot of questions to which there aren't right answers. 
Um, and this is one of those, right? As high load is kind of laid out in a lot of detail, it depends on your goals. It depends on your risk tolerance. You know, like I'm happy to tell you what I do. Hilo's happy to tell you what he does. Um, but this is one of those questions where there there isn't a correct answer. Um, it's really just about your risk tolerance, what you're playing for. Um, and you need to kind of, you know, you need to figure that out for yourself, right? We can't tell you what that should be. And I don't mean to sound that like, I don't mean to sound dismissive in any way by saying that. Um, it's just, you know, this is one of those things that like, there's not a, there's not a best practice. There's not an industry standard thing. You just gotta, you know, you gotta figure out how you want to approach it. All right, guys. All right, boys. Hey, Aaron, I see a hand raised. Yeah, no, are you going to take that? Or we um, this is Ann Mag. I'm going to send you an invite. Jump up here real quick. We'll we'll keep this one short, guys, and then uh, you guys can take All us right. out. Perfect. Later, Hilo. And Mag, I go X, ahead you and uh, you take drop us out the question today. I got to run, man. Like, it's six here. o'clock already, and my kiddos yeah. are screaming. Yep, get out of here. <laughs> All right, boys. Fam, it pleasure hanging out. See you guys. All right, and Mag. Yes, hello. Sweet, thank you. I'll make it quick for you guys. Um, so uh, last week I had the best week I've ever had. Um, that's because I focused on two things that you guys mentioned on, and that was um, the game stack, Cincinnati Bengals, and the, or Cincinnati and, and Cleveland. And the other second thing to add to that, which went into my decision-making, was the free-floating plays. So I focused on those two things, and it went crazy. Now I chose um, instead of instead uh, instead of choosing Baker Mayfield, I went with uh, Joe Burrow, and the free floating play I went with was the Cowboys D. So had I switched to Baker, had I switched to Lamar, uh, and got out Chase and switch, you know, put in, you know, stack Lamar with Hollywood Brown, I would have been crazy successful. I would have been in the top 100 lineups, maybe in the top 50 lineups. It would have been nuts. So um, my question here that today, uh, this time is maybe more of an echo, echoing again some of the things that you said, which was, um, you know, what what should we, you know, if we had to dumb it down completely, what should we as like what's the theme of the week, right? You know, do do we go with the uh, the high chalk um, of uh, De Ernest Johnson and and Mark Ingram, uh, you know, or or would it be advantageous in the MME to maybe just fade them. So, so that's kind of, um, you know, what, what should we be hyper-focusing on? Do you guys think? Yeah. So I can't tell you like who to play, right? Because I can't predict outcomes. I can't tell you that like Dearness Johnson and Mark Ingram are going to have good games or bad games. Um, what I can tell you is that's the most important decision point of the slate because they're, mm. they're the two, uh, they're projected to be the two highest ownership plays by a pretty wide margin. And so I think that you can, you know, you can decide where you're comfortable uh, allocating your risk, right? And so on every roster you build, you have some amount of allocation of risk and some amount of allocation of of what you feel is safety. And so chalk plays are generally uh, perceived as safe, right? They're perceived as good upside, good floors, high likelihood of success. Not every chalk play is going to hit. We can't control that, right? But they're they're the strongest plays. And so the the parts of your roster that you allocate towards chalk is is your allocation of safety. And then you have to figure out where you want to allocate your risk. Um, and so the risk the risk elements would be like playing the lower ownership plays, the more volatile plays, um, the plays that might have great ceilings, but also kind of terrifying floors. And so there's not a right answer to this question, right? Like I think that 
you know, Jarnus Johnson and Mark Ingram are, are on paper the, the two strongest plays in the slate. And I think that it's entirely viable to say it, no matter no matter what you're building, if you're building one, if you're building one roster, if you're building 150 rosters to say, I'm just going to lock both of them because they are the best plays. And, you know, I want and I want if they hit, you know, I don't know if they're going to hit. But if they do, I want to make sure that I am in the best possible position to to benefit from that hitting, right? Or you could go the – I mean, I think you could also go the other route and say they're also the highest owned plays of the slate and football's a volatile game and anyone can fail. Um, and, you know, even guys in great spots fail all the time. And so I will just fade them and try to, you know, and hope they fail and 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 try to win elsewhere. And like I, I can't tell you which is the right answer because like, I can't predict outcomes. I can't tell you like, well, Dearness, if Dearness Johnson's going to score two touchdowns tomorrow or not. Right. Um, but that's the way that I would think it through. Right. Like, is that does right. that make sense? Like, is that helpful? No, it does. And I think that was the most important takeaway from last week is just focusing on, you know, the core plays, like like you said, the assigning risk to the more chalkier. And then it was the free floating plays that would make the difference. You know, I chose the Cowboys D and we all know how that went, you know. Yeah. Um, and so, <laughs> you know, so I think that makes total sense. It just gives me, you know, just more hyper focused on those things you know to to you know instead of thinking about oh well who's you know which defense under 3000 should i be worried about i should be worrying about being more unique you know what i mean and so and so that's what i like about you guys and that was awesome thank you absolutely and like yeah and my like and so you know you have to figure out the way that works for you right and and everyone's going to have their own style my personal style is i try to have a very tight core of players that i have a high degree of confidence in and and i recognize that if that core fails i'm going to lose that week um, and that's okay with me, right? Like, and I just recognize, like, look, I'm investing in this core of players, and I'm going to have them on a high percentage of my rosters or every roster. And if they fail, then that's it. But it also means if they hit, then it gives me the best chance of having the right combinations around them. Now, Sonic, who I see in the audience here, um, he will, he has a much, he plays a much different style than I do, and he's obviously been very successful at it, right? He won a million dollars, so you know, who am I to argue with that? But the point here is not that there's a right style or a wrong style. It's that you know, Sonic has a much broader player pool um, than I do, and he's had success that way. You can find success either way. It's just about finding the style that works for you, that works with your risk tolerance, your bankroll, the types of contests you enter, um, and your and your mentality, right? Your your psych your psychology your discipline DFS is largely is a game of psychology and discipline where you can you can stick to your strategy and not overreact after having a losing week and be like well crap I played the chalk this week and all the chalk failed and so next week I'm gonna go super off the board right and next week oh the chalk hit so I better go back and play the chalk plays right like figure out your strategy your contest selection strategy your bankroll strategy whether or not you know your strategy of approaching ownership um, and then you know and and focus on honing your execution of the strategy. Uh, as opposed to trying to kind of like bounce around from, you know, one strategy to another based on what worked or didn't work last week. So, you know, you, you can do it either way. It's really, you know, that's really personal preference. Um, but that's that's how I play. And that's how I think through those things. Amazing. Thank you guys for the content and putting this this together. It's been it's been great. So thank it's you. Awesome. Again. And, congr- and congratulations on the awesome week last week. Oh yeah, all, all thanks to you guys. It was nothing on my. <laughs> my I, you, you clicked. You clicked the rosters, man. Not us. Yeah. Um, 
All right. Uh, we got to get out of here. I got to get out of here. This has been a long one, um, but it was a complicated slate. I hope this was valuable. Uh, as always, thank you for listening. Um, catch us in Discord to continue talking through the slate all the way, you know, tonight, tomorrow morning, up until lock. Uh, we'll be around, and I'll be around. Uh, I assume Hal will be back at some point too. Uh, other OWS contributors will be around in Discord tonight too. So come chat with us. Uh, let's talk through things. Let's get your strategy set. Uh, and let's prepare to see you all at the top of the leaderboards tomorrow. Good night.